Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. Today we're talking about interview and interrogation. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown, or maybe it's welcome to the Tactical Breakdown for the first time. Either way, I hope that you pull some actionable, relevant content out of today's episode. And before we jump into the conversation I had with Steve Johnson, I want to briefly just give a quick teaser as to what you can be expecting here coming up in 2022. Obviously, we have a handful of episodes left from our conversations earlier in the year, and those are going to be rolling out throughout the end of 2021. But in 2022, we are bringing back the Instructors Roundtable. So I've been this has to have been the number one thing that people ask me for all the time. I can't tell you how many emails I get about it. And so we're going to be bringing the Instructors Roundtable back. It's going to be live. Um, you're going to be able to access it on Facebook, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, wherever it uh, works best for you. And uh, we're going to be announcing those topics uh, for each month. And we're going to be doing that early uh, in 2021 um, so that uh, everybody can see what we're, what we're doing here uh, over the next year. So excited for that. Um, on today's episode, again, like I said, this is with Steve Johnson. Steve's the chief of police for Swansea, Illinois. And he's also a lead instructor for our friends over at Caliber Press. And this was a really interesting discussion because the conversation that we had was all about interview and interrogation. And we talk a lot about interrogation as a term, um, why there's negative connotations around that, what that actually means. And maybe we will talk uh, about some methodologies that you can use um, in uh, an interview to uh, to get the results that you want. So excited to uh, share that with you today. So let's jump right into this episode with Steve Johnson and uh, get after it. Here we go. Hey everyone, Adam Kanakin here with Eyelet Network, sitting at Eyelita here in St. Louis with Steve Johnson with Cal- from Caliber Press. Steve, thanks for taking the time and joining me, brother. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I was excited. I didn't get a chance to catch your class this morning. What was it that you ran your class on? So it was interviewing and interrogating, eliciting the truth and determining deceit. Um, really, the functionalities of of how do you get someone to tell you the truth and. And especially in, in the day and age that we're in, and it's always been true, is that you don't want to um, elicit a false confession. So a big thing that we talked about is how do you confirm that what they're telling you is the truth and making sure, as we said earlier, you're going down the right rabbit hole. And, and how do you get them to tell the truth if they are guilty or not, especially when most people come in and they're going to talk to law enforcement. They've got their plan in their mind ahead of time of what they're going to say and what they're not going to say. How do you get them off of that? Yeah, I know when we did the ILET Summit last year, I had a, a great group of guys, the team from uh, Savage Training Group did an I and I segment. Um, and one conversation that we had then, and, and I'd like to get your opinion on it now, when we say interview and interrogation, there seems to be some negative connotation when we include interrogation into that terminology. Why is that still, like, why is it relevant that we still use that term, and, or do you think we should be moving away from it? You know, uh, nowadays in, in, in 2021, everything's about wordsmithing, you know, making it softer, feeler, everybody hugs, you know, that type of stuff. So I get the point of, of maybe looking at it at a different term, but in reality, 
it's, it's, it's what you do. It's like right now, everybody, the, the magical word is de-escalation. Well, my dad was a, was a cop in St. Louis City in the 1960s after surviving Vietnam. They were doing de-escalation then. They just didn't call it that. And now it's a magical type of thing. And in effect, when you're in there trying to, trying to get a confession from a guilty parsi, party, you're interrogating them. So, you know, yeah, you can call it all different things if you want. Um, you know, one of the big, thing, big cases that we went over today in the class is we uh, handled a case a few years ago where a 17-year-old girl was, was missing. And detectives were called out to work on this case. And it turned out that there was a, um, a teacher at the high school that was trying to start a relationship with a 17-year-old student. And uh, the detectives hopped on the case right away, did a fantastic job, even though initially um, some of her friends lied about where she potentially could have been, they were trying to protect her. Um, not lie to get her in trouble or she was doing something evil, but she liked to play basketball with them, had a little bit of a crush on them, you know, that type of stuff. And what we, we, when we couldn't go any forward anymore, then the detectives went backwards and re-interviewed all the people they originally interviewed. And one of the friends spewed this out. Well, you know, she does play basketball with this teacher. We then go find the teacher after 16 hours of, in, of initially interviewing, because he wasn't in custody. Then he lied so much, and then he admitted to trying to have a relationship with a high school student as a teacher. That's illegal. And um, then it changed to an interrogation. After 16 hours, he confessed that he tried to have a relationship with her. She shunned him. He reached into the car, tried to pull her out. When he did that, her neck snapped and she went lifeless. He then put her back into the car, seat belted her in, drove around town, realized he's a driver's ed instructor, that um, he needed gas, so he pulled up at a gas station and gassed up with this dead body in there, kind of like the movie Weekend at Bernie's, if you will, you know? And um, then he's like, what am I gonna do with this body? He goes to this secluded park, drags her body out into the park, and he confesses to us that when he drags her, she makes a sound. So he takes off his belt, wraps it around her neck, and chokes as hard as he can. She makes another sound. He uses his foot for leverage and pulls as hard as he can, and he snaps the belt. So he has to reposition it again, and finally, um, she's deceased, leaves her out in the woods. He then goes home to his mom, still lives at home with his mom, probably like you, Adam. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of interview we're going to have. All right, yeah. Steve. All we're right. going that direction. All right, all right, fair enough. <laughs> and uh, he changes clothes, goes country line dancing all night long, hitting on other young girls. So by the time he confesses to us, I hate to say it this way, but it's another homicide. We worked a lot of homicides where, where I work in the area. And it's just, it's another homicide. So we bring him out to the woods to find her. Now, by then, it's 30 hours after he killed her, killed her probably three times. Um, takes us over an hour in the woods to find her. Um, when we find her, it's all on video. We show it in the class. When we find her, she's all scrunched up, fetal position. You can see her head, you know, crooked and all. It's just it's horrendous looking at the beginning. While we're standing there, after 30 hours of her being dead, she takes a breath. And one of my guys starts screaming, she's alive, she's live, get EMTs. We got him with us, we put him down on the ground, we start trying to give her help. Make a very long story short, fast forward several years forward, today she's married with two kids and absolutely doing amazing. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story about, not me, even though I am the greatest, but I'm just kidding, but it's, it's an amazing story about detectives doing their job the right way and truly understanding how to interview and then interrogate a suspect. 
this guy was so slick, Adam, that in the middle of the interview, he was demanding to take a polygraph, demanding to take a polygraph. Now, we were lucky when this happened that our polygraph, it was a Thursday night, our polygraph examiner is an avid bowler, and he's also an alcoholic. So he was too drunk to come in and do the polygraph. So, uh, so we continued with the interview, and uh, ultimately he, uh, this guy confessed, and, and he was charged with attempted murder and is doing 20 years in a state prison. Yeah, as he should be. Yeah. What were the core concepts of the methodology that you're investigators used during this process that led them down so they are like okay well we've we've exhausted what we know right now what was it when they go back and they say okay obviously we missed something let's track back and start from scratch but you're not starting from scratch because you have all the information and knowledge that you just gained right what does that process look like from your perspective like what do you want investigators to be doing that maybe they're missing during these these investigation processes? Well, I think yeah, it's a great question. You gotta understand, you know, everybody's human, everybody has different things they're really good at and other things that they're improving on. And then on top of that, knowing people's strengths. And we always, major case squad of Greater St. Louis, there's 500 homicide detectives that cover 12 or 14 counties, two different states, 86% clearance rate for homicides. The methodology with that is that we go forward and we do everything we can. If you get stuck, can't go any forward, you switch everybody up and you go backwards and redo everything. And not only did we do that before the interrogation of this teacher, but we also did it during the, inter the interview and the interrogation. Now, and I'll give you an example of it. So at the beginning, he's not admitting anything. Then he kind of translates to, well, yeah, we like to play basketball. And then throughout time, he admitted, well, I was trying to have a relationship with her, but I left her and I didn't do anything. So how do you, how do you get him or this suspect off of those topics? And, and we always say this, and it's kind of weird to say this, but, it, but it's the reality that every interview and interrogation in reality is a game. Now, it's a game with dire consequences. My son-in-law is air traffic control, and I always say that's, that's PlayStation with dire consequences, you know, mm -hmm. in a way. And it's, and it's true in here also. And the game is this that it is a game that you have to play. You've got to show fake empathy, fake interest, fake you care about this person. Um, I always say in an interrogation room, if I have to prostitute myself in there, I will. Meaning I'm gonna hug you, I'm gonna touch you, I'm gonna do, you know, I, I'm gonna be nice to you even though I want you to go to prison the rest of your life to build that rapport. And then as you talk to them, understanding that it's a game, um, the reality of the game is you're the only one who knows the rules. And we say this all the time, Adam, that in an interrogation room, I'm selling one thing that no one wants to buy, but I'm gonna get them to buy it. And what I am selling is prison. No one wants to buy prison, but you have to understand the human animal. You know, in law enforcement, I hate to throw out another hat that we all have to wear, but you have to be a human behavior specialist. You gotta understand, like right when I said that, you lean back and you scratched your right buttocks, and then you scratched your crotch after that, and now you're crossing your hands and your leg is moving. What, what is it, is it, is it just your comfort zone? Or is there a reason that I touch on a nerve, that I hit on this and me constantly watching you and being conscious of what you're unconsciously doing is huge. Now with that, when it's a game, I know the rules. Human beings, I know this. There's two things that, that all human beings, and it doesn't matter if it's a tribe in Zimbabwe in the middle of Africa that has never seen an iPhone, all human beings have two most important things two driving factors of them. Number one is the need for pleasure. 
Now, when I say that, every guy in the room automatically thinks of sex. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's not that, but it's, it's sex, it's clothing, it's I got people who love me, I have food in my stomach, I just ate lunch, I have a roof over my head, so it's a lot of things. Number two is this, the need to avoid pain. So out of those two, where people get it confused, up, confused sometimes, because we bring our value system to the interview room, mm -hmm. we think that it's a need for pleasure. It's not. It's the need to avoid pain. Now, when I say that, some people, well, Steve, I can prove that you're wrong with that. I went to 2134 West Main Street. I've been there 1,700 times, and, and the female's always getting beat up, and she never leaves. But you have to think about it. She's got 4.5 kids. She has no education, no family, no support. The last time she left with the kids, she went to a shelter and a priest sexually abused one of her kids. It is literally less painful to stay in this abusive house and get beat up once in a while than to leave with her family and have nothing. So we have to understand their value system. So what we do in an interrogation room when we teach at Caliber Press is how to make it less painful to confess and to buy prison than to continue lying. And I'm not talking about physically, although in a way it's within yourself physiologically. Um, so we don't do anything physical, it's emotionally. How do you sell prison in such a way where they confess to you? And it's quite the game that you play, a cat and mouse game. And a lot of it is experience in a way. I, I teach some online college classes and I always quiz the, the kids right out of high school. Why are you taking a law enforcement class? What do you wanna do? Every one of them, I can tell what's popular on TV. If it was Chicago PD, I wanna be a homicide detective. If it's CSI, I wanna be crime scene. You know, They don't really understand what they really do. And they don't wanna answer dog barking calls for years and years and work midnights and weekends. They just wanna go right to that. And I explained to them, it's years of experience as a patrol officer before you could ever truly interrogate someone because you have to develop that skill set. And about half my students drop the class right away because they don't wanna do that stuff first. So it's an interesting cat and mouse game that you about just learning about people. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you on that point. What are the those traits that you're inherently looking for? You know, if you're like, hey, we're looking for a, 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 somebody to fill a detective spot. What are those traits that you're going to be looking for to to bring somebody in? And you're like, I can tell that you know this person's pretty raw with this, but they have those inherent skills whether it be like the use of tactical empathy, those types of things. And we like, we, do you directly target people to fill those spots or is it kind of just like a, a luck of the draw? I think it's both. I mean, organizations are significantly different how they do it. When I say both is sometimes there's unexpected opening and you gotta fill it with, with what you gotta fill. But the smarter departments, just like you said, tactical empathy, you're tactical about, you're grooming your people along the way. As, as a chief and as a prior chief investigator over all of our specialty units, what I would look for always was the patrol officer or someone in a drug unit or, or specialized unit or, or whatever else, what do they do on every case above and beyond? You know, when, when I started out as a cop, I, I did not, I mean, I wanted to go after, you know, armed robbers, murderers and run and fight everybody. And then they send me to a burglary call that happened two weeks before and someone came home after the fact and I thought the world was over, life sucks. I don't, that's not why I became a cop. But then I realized that handling those things the right way, doing a neighborhood canvas, calling my informants, going above and beyond on everything and doing a detailed report, when even at the time I had a sergeant who told me, do a paragraph, get back out on the street. 
And I just thought, eh, I got to do more than that. And, I, and what happened with me personally is then the commanders in the, in the detective bureau noticed that. That, hey, here's a cop who's going above and beyond and doing much more. And not only that, but when I make a traffic stop, it's not about the ticket. It's about taking it beyond the ticket and doing much more and doing above and beyond. Also, a big part of that is when something big would happen at our department, a double, triple homicide, something like that, <clears throat> an informant that I developed as a street police officer would call me and say, hey, I think I have some information. And I wasn't interested in getting the, you know, I don't want the big hoopla about that. I get a hold of detectives. Hey, here's a guy or gal that works with me a lot on the street, gives me warrants and dope and guns and stuff like that. And would you guys be willing to talk to this person? And they notice those things because it's above and beyond type of stuff that you're doing. So if I had to boil it down to one word, and I know this is a cliche, it's are you a good communicator? Do you know how to talk to people above and beyond, you know, driver's license and just the facts? Does that make yeah. sense? No, absolutely. And I think like <clears throat> attention to detail plays into that, right? Yes. What are you what are you seeing? What are you situationally aware of? Yeah. Right? Like what what are the what is the with all the amount of information that we're bombarded with every second, there's certain people that can take and, and understand more of it than others. And I think absolutely. those people are also um, predisposed to being able to conduct an investigation at a much higher level. Um, and it's not because the other person isn't intending to do that. It's just that sometimes they miss things that they didn't even know existed. So a great point of that is um, one of the big things we talk about Caliber Press, probably most of our classes, is in police work, uh, being conscious of the unconscious. You know, we've all done this. I probably did it today driving here. You drive three or four hours, and when you get there, someone asks you, hey, there was a crash on the highway. Which way did you go? And you're like, I have no clue. I don't even remember the drive at all. But I guarantee you, if a basketball would have rolled out in front of me, I would have hit the brakes and stopped and not hit that little kid chasing it. But in these types of situations, you have to bring the unconscious to the conscious realm and be much more tuned in. <clears throat> I, I'm never home during the day, you know, especially with my job, 14, 15, 16 hours a day, six days a week. Well, one day I'm, I'm off, I had to go to the doctor, I didn't feel good afterwards, so I'm home early. And my dog's there, and my dog's not trained, he's a rescue dog and stuff like that. And uh, my dog at like 3.30 starts going crazy at the front door. And I'm like, no one's ever home now. I, I know I, he doesn't have to go out, but I'll open the door. He won't go out. He's going crazy. And I'm like, what are you doing, dude? Calm down. So he hides for a little bit. Then he comes back five minutes later, and he's doing the same thing. A few minutes later, my wife walks in the front door. And I'm like, how the heck did my stupid dog know that my wife was going to call? I don't think he knows how to read time. And I mean, he's not looking at the clock. Oh, yeah, my, you know, master's almost home. Doesn't see it like that. So then I start reading a magazine, Scientific American. And they talk about how animals, um, when they are with their owners for a long time, they develop the ability to read their facial and body language. They know when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're mad. You ever come home, your dog looks at you and goes, eh, I'm going to go hide for a little bit. You didn't say anything. They read that. And not only that, but they become so tuned in to those around them that they love and that they care about that they literally can tell time. So I'm like, what are you talking about? When my wife leaves in the, mor in the morning, her smell is right here. And I'm not making fun of her. She is kind of stinky, but she was a correctional officer a long time before. Now she's a high school teacher, pretty much the same job, if you right. know what I mean. Yeah. So her smell is here. And throughout the day, while she's gone, it dissipates. And because she's a high school teacher, school lets out the same time. She's home the same time. Every day, her smell is about right here. 
and the dog knows she's going to walk in the door. It's fascinating to read. Now, I'm not telling you everybody that you greet, you walk up to and you smell their butthole. I'm, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is, as, as interrogators and detectives and police officers, imagine if we're that tuned in to people and the things that they do, the truth that you truly get out of that, from that. And, and really, as a detective and interrogator, that's what you're looking for. Are they that, that tuned in? Or can they develop that skill? Because many of them don't have it initially. Yeah, no, absolutely. Are those some of the core components that you were discussing in your class today? Or what is there, what, obviously we're here with, it's all instructors, right? right? We're all instructors, which is always a, an interesting type of class when you're teaching other instructors. Yes. What is the key component that, or multiple components that you're trying to leave with these instructors so that they can take back to their agencies? What is that when they, when they attend a class with you? So it's interesting, and, I, and maybe I'm um, contrary sometimes to what Ilita wants you to do, and, but <clears throat> I, I start off the class with this, the experience, that there is no WYSIWYG for interrogating. If someone tells you, if you do these seven steps, you're always going to get a confession. It's not true. In fact, a lot of the videos that I show, I preface it with this. The way this guy or this, this female officer did this interrogation is horrible. Don't do it that way. But they got a confession. Now, I'm not talking about illegal, immoral, right. or anything like that, but I'm talking about they were sitting here or they did here, but it worked. And I'm a huge proponent when it comes to interrogating people that you literally learn every modality, every way, every interview technique, you read every book, you watch every video, you watch every rookie on your department talk to someone fresh out of the academy and there's going to be something new. You're like, ah, but there is no one WYSIWYG that will always get it. And I think like my style is a blend of all of them. In other words, I'm a thief. I steal from everybody that has ever taught interview and interrogation or what they do, and I blend that together. And, and what you get out of the Caliber Press interview and interrogation class is building rapport, is um, mirroring, is understanding when someone stretches, um, what does that mean at that exact moment? You know, and sometimes, Adam, it's just as simple as this, that you ask me, hey, um, you know, we had the sex assault of this little girl. Where were you last night at 8 o'clock? And the second you ask that, they turn like this, and they wipe away lint from their sleeve. And, and the problem is they're a registered sex offender. They have wore the same clothes for nine weeks. They, there's semen all over them. from multi They don't care. They don't care about this lint. But at the exact moment that you ask, where were you last night at 8 o'clock, when you know what they were doing and they know what they were doing, they have to look away and wipe away this lint. And, and some people say, well, how does, that's not really a tell to think about this. <clears throat> a lot of people in your audience have children. And when you, imagine you come home from work and little Johnny, who's three and a half, four years old, um, is nowhere to be seen, but in the kitchen, there's a broken cookie jar and chocolate chips are all over the place. Your dog came in and ate them and chocolate chips are bad for cookies, Adam, or bad for dogs, if you didn't know that, Adam. Mm. So your dog poops all over your house, right? And then all of a sudden, little Johnny comes in, mommy's home, mommy's home, mommy's home. And you see a big chocolate chunk right here and you know Johnny did this and you ask him, Johnny, did you break this cookie jar? There's no three and a half year old that's gonna look you directly in the eyes and say, father, I did not partake in those delicious marshals. It ain't gonna happen that way. Instead, little Johnny's gonna do this. He, in fact, little Johnny knows he can't look away. If he just looks on the ground, you have read his soul and you know he's lying. 
at three and a half years old, they know that already. So little Johnny has to manufacture something. So he does something like this. No, mommy, I didn't. I didn't. They cover their age. Now imagine if you had a, asked a sex offender. They're not going to go, oh, no, I didn't. They're not going to cover it. So they have to manufacture a reason at that moment, brushing the lint away, to look away. And, and understanding that in that context of what that means is absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, my background in university was psychology, so this stuff, I feel like you and I could sit, I will sit down and pick your brain for hours um, and I'm excited to be able to do that. I know we're going to be doing a lot of work with Caliber coming up this year and, and beyond. So I'm excited to be able to spend more time with you. But I want to thank you for taking the time and sitting down with me today. It's been a complete honor. Awesome. Mine too, Adam. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you. Join the Islet Network now. Go to islet.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network.